Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. At the age of 32, my guest on the podcast today developed a headache and nausea and vomiting. She ended up in the emergency department and discovered to her horror that she had a brain tumor and meningitis. There was no clear plan for what was to happen next. And after many, many mishaps, she finally ended up having the tumor removed and saving her own life. Claire Sneeman tells the story of her journey through healthcare in this episode of the Health Design Podcast. I know that you are not a physician and yet you saved a life, you saved your own life. But before we go into that bit of the conversation, I'd like to talk about who Claire Snyman was before she got ill, the day before she got ill. Who was she? What were her aspirations? What were her thoughts? Well, thank you very much, firstly, for having me here today. I'm uh, thrilled to be joining in this conversation. That's a good point. The before and the after, I think a lot of people wonder about that when they are diagnosed with something that imminently impacts their life. Yeah, the day before my life changed, I was a Claire, mother of four-year-old son, wife, living in Vancouver, Canada, having lived in South Africa and Australia prior to that. I was a product manager at a biotech company here in Vancouver, hardworking you know, working late at night and so forth. My aspirations were to continue working that direction, sort of professional aspirations to continue climbing the career ladder and happy sort of doing and being busy. And that's what the before was for me, really. And then things changed. Yes. And then things changed. What happened the night that things changed? So what really happened was I woke up that next morning. I woke up in bed and the room was spinning around me. I looked up at the fixture, the light fixture on the uh, on the room, uh, the roof, and it was spinning in circles. And I'd never experienced that before. And I literally had to hold onto the mattress to keep still. And I thought, good Lord, I've obviously been working way too hard, which I had. And I thought I've obviously need to listen to my body and take heed. And I uh, sort of stumbled downstairs and said to my husband, I'm not going to work today. I need to rest. I realized this was obviously some form of vertigo or something. And I rested up. And it went away by the end of the day. But then the next day, I got an incredible migraine. And I'd never had headaches before in my life. And this was very unusual. And by the end of the next day, my husband said, this is not right. I think maybe you need to go to the doctor. So I went to my family physician on the third day. And I told her my presentation of the vertigo, the migraine. And she actually said, this doesn't sound right. She said, I think maybe we need to actually get you seen too by somebody else. So I think you need to go to the emergency room and get worked up just to check that there's nothing else going on. Maybe it's a viral meningitis, something like that, that we're not seeing. And so I did. That's what I did. I went to the ER. I remember I went in the wee hours of the morning to get ahead of any ER stream that might be happening of lots of people. And so it was me just by myself. Um, so my husband could look after our four-year-old son. And I was there and I was tested for my viral meningitis. And I also had a CT scan just to check. And lo and behold, they found that I actually did have viral meningitis. But at the same time, they found I had a non-malignant brain tumor, which was totally unexpected. I remember being in the ER by myself. My husband had not arrived yet. And he said to me, you have viral meningitis, but at the same time, we found that you have a brain tumor at the same time. And he said, I'll come back and explain it to you. And he left the room. And that was the after. I remember that to my day where 
I thought you, you're kidding. I have a brain tumor. And from that day onwards, I think every single day has been a little bit more of a navigation and up and a down and figuring how to deal with a lot of different things that I didn't realize I'd have to deal with because I went from being just an ordinary patient who'd had things going on in her life before, but now I was more very much a complex patient. And that was a big challenge for me from a medical perspective, but also just a personal perspective. You're being very kind in how you've described that because, in fact, the news wasn't broken to you in a way that was particularly sensitive. Uh, That's the first thing. And the second thing is you weren't aware that there is such a thing as a benign brain tumor. As far as you were concerned, you had a walnut inside your head, which was going to keep on growing. How did you navigate that experience? And what did you learn from that experience that really startled you? Yeah, so totally. As I said to you, I was told the information and then pretty much left by myself in the ER cubicle. And I had my phone on me and I remember being completely panicked. And what did I do? I did start searching up because I thought, well, what is this brain tumor I need to look? What does this mean to me? And I think that's probably the worst thing you can do to a patient is leave them by by themselves. Once you've just told them something and allow them to go down the sort of dark vortex of cyberspace, because what I started to see was numbers and stats, which were not looking somewhat positive to me. And that left for a somewhat negative patient experience on my first step into becoming an individual with a brain tumor. I was then thereafter, the neurologist on call came back to see me. I was then seen by a neurosurgeon on call as well. And thereafter, I did get sort of, this is what the steps in the next part of your patient journey will look like. And then I was sent home after that. So I did have a little bit of a glimpse into what the next steps would be in my sort of way forward. I would not require treatment immediately. I would be put on a watch and wait list, as they put it, which means you sort of have MRIs once a year to monitor it. I would not require surgery immediately. I would not require chemotherapy or radiation. So I went home with that knowledge in the back pocket. But believe me, I got home and I still had a lot of unanswered questions because my time in the ER was with the ER doctor and even with the neurosurgeon and neurologist on call was still somewhat limited. And I think that for me, really, when I look at what I'm doing today, really does has left a, a mark on me as a, as a patient and how I look at how I receive my care. Well, first of all, Claire, I'm really sorry that that news was broken to you in that way, in that place. And yet when I think about it as a doctor, the place you're most likely to break bad news is in the emergency department where somebody comes in acutely unwell and you suddenly realize that they've got either a malignancy or they've got a cardiac condition or they've got a neurological condition, whatever it happens to be. Breaking News 101 is taught in medical schools. And yet Mm. in the environment of the emergency department, it isn't handled well. Do you have any thoughts about that in retrospect? Yeah, totally. And it's really interesting because I've had several, I've had many, countless, even since then, countless experiences in the ER where I've had other uh, health conditions broken to me. And I agree with you, the ER is a very dynamic environment. It speaks to a highly stressful environment for healthcare staff working there, for patients, for families, for caregivers. And I think, as you said, even though that may be taught in med school in that environment, 
I wonder how it's actually taught. Is it taught as just a 101 or is it actually taught with, let's call, let's say patient interaction where people actually get to break that news and not patient interaction, but actually have that proper training to actually do it, to actually see what it means instead of just a a rote learning. This is what you should say. This is what you should do. But actually the practicing of doing it, the actual real life interaction. Because when you're actually in that situation, what does it actually feel like to say those words that are up on the screen in the lecture theater? Oh, you should say this to a patient. This is what it feels like. But I think at the end of the day, what's really important to me is what would we would have been important to me would have been if a doctor put himself in my shoes and said, I'm about to tell this. How old was I then? 32-year-old woman who is a mother that she has a brain tumor and she's by herself. Would I not ask her, you know, is your husband coming in just now? Is somebody joining you? Are you with someone in the waiting room? Ask a few more questions just to probe where I am emotionally and so forth, just to understand when you deliver this news, what is that going to mean to the person? And what matters to me as a patient before delivering this news? And then also the after effect of delivering such news to an individual. What does that mean before just dropping the bombshell and leaving? I think that's really. I think that part is really, really critical. Yes, I agree. There are lots of things that could have been handled differently in that scenario in terms of breaking bad news. And yes, to your point, we teach breaking bad news very differently. We absolutely insist that it is practiced and that somebody is observed breaking bad news and it's done in a way that isn't just reading something out on a slide that says cancer, tell patient they've got cancer. It's mm-hmm. a more sophisticated than that. Most medical schools would agree with that. However, I'm really interested in this experience because it is something about the environment, isn't it? In emergency environment or in an emergency yes. setting where things just fall apart, where somebody is trying to survive one case after the other of something quite horrible and mm-hmm. they're not thinking about the person they're breaking the news to. I'm going to save this person's life and walk away. Not, I'm going yep. to save this person's life make sure that I don't damage them before they leave the building. Yep, I would agree with you. And I think for me, even through my whole experience, I've realized is that this is often not an individual person issue. It's more of a systemic issue, actually. So as you said, it's it's the ER environment. It's an environment that potentially leads to, as you're saying, it's, it's patient in, patient out, patient in, patient out. And in order for the healthcare staff to be able to do that, sometimes it means losing a little bit of that human connection that, hello, my name is, I'm so-and-so, and and this is what I'm going to be doing today. Sometimes some of that gets forgotten in the madness, in the rush, in the chaos of what's going on and some of the conditions that are coming in and out the door. And I think that comes from a higher systemic nature of what might be happening at the organizational level, at the ER level. And so I think that comes from how how can that be supported from the organization from small things that can make a difference. Like, as I was saying, hello, my name is. The countless times I have been in some of the ERs where I don't know who the person is who's actually treating me. I don't know what their role is, but that makes a huge difference to me as a patient. And how can organizations support small initiatives like that? And in my case, where the delivery of news wasn't ideal like that, small initiatives where it's even, if you are delivering bad news, to take a breath before you are dealing delivering bad news, to give a gentle smile or a gentle uh, touch on the person's shoulder 
every single time that you do that. It's that human connection that can actually allow the staff member to actually remember what they're doing and how they are delivering that news. It's those small things that can actually make the big difference to the person at the end of it, which is me, the patient, who is receiving that care. Yes, I agree that will make a difference to that person to whom you're delivering the care, but also makes a difference to the experience of the person breaking that news. Because if you lose your humanity, you stop becoming a healer. Okay, so breaking bad news was certainly one side of this. But in your wonderful TED Talk, you talk about the fact that it's the third most common cause of untimely death. These are errors of omission or errors of commission in healthcare. Let's talk about that next. There are many errors that were made in your case, and maybe you could talk about one and let's unpack that one. So as I said, I was diagnosed with my brain tumor 11 years ago. And then two years after my diagnosis, my brain tumor doubled in size. So I became acutely ill. And when I was acutely ill, what meant is I I had vertigo again, I had migraines again that wouldn't go away. And even though I used to get these, you know, during my patient journey, this was more severe than I'd ever had before. And my family physician was treating me um, with different medications and it just wasn't resolving. So she said, we need to get you for a CT scan. She said, I'm concerned your brain tumor is growing. So she sent me to the emergency room with a special requisition form with all the details stating, you know, I I believe this patient needs a CT scan. So I went to the ER, I handed my form in, I saw the ER doctor, and I even said to him, I have a brain tumor, this is the deal, my family physician believes I need a CT scan. He saw me, and by now I was also starting to get challenged with my memory. I didn't realize my brain tumor was growing. He didn't actually really listen much to me, as we were just saying, the nature of the ER overworked, overstressed, too many patients in and out. And he gave me migraine medication, IV, and said if I didn't feel better the next day that I should come back. And I'm quite a good advocate for myself. I am good at asking questions and trying to advocate where I'm where possible. But I had gone in, I had told him what I needed. And I, he said, no, this is what we're going to do for you. And I thought, okay, well, I said what I needed to. I also, as I said, was not starting to feel well. And they sent me home. When I actually got home, my husband did ask me and say, did they do a CT scan? So I said, no. He said, that's not okay. Why did they not do one? So I said, I know I'm too tired. I need to go sleep. And I went to sleep. I followed up with a second opinion who I had managed to actually get at a a hospital. And I emailed the neurosurgeon there who said, you need an urgent MRI, which I managed to get at a private uh, clinic. And that actually showed that my brain tumor had doubled in size and I had hydrocephalus, which is the condition where your brain has swollen and you've got you know, fluid inside your brain. So I had to have urgent uh, emergency brain surgery. And by then, by the time I had surgery, I was struggling to walk up the stairs. I was losing my memory. I was, couldn't remember words because my hydrocephalus was progressing so quickly. So that for me was very scary, even though I wasn't feeling scared because my brain was so slow, so swollen. So that for me was a big tragedy that it got to that stage where for me that really highlighted a sense of lack of communication, I think, between physicians where one wasn't listening to the other and also diagnosis. And 
I'm just lucky I'm here today. And I'm very grateful for that because I could have just gone to sleep and not been here today. We're very grateful that you are here to tell your story, Claire. I wanted to ask you two things. First, did you pay for that second opinion? Yes, I did. I did. As uh, you might know, here in Canada, we have a really great, actually, public health care system. Sometimes it is challenging, however, to get certain services. So I paid firstly for my the MRI we just spoke about. But sometimes if you want to get a second opinion, and I actually did, I got a second opinion for my brain tumor in the US because I wanted to find an, an opinion of somebody who had the most experience with this specific type of very rare brain tumor that I had. And I did that. And I found that at Johns Hopkins. I looked, I did my research because that was very important to me. This was after I was diagnosed. I found the neurosurgeon who had the most research with my rare type of brain tumor in the US. And I had a consult with him just to ensure that the treatment I was being uh, in the community in Canada was in line with global trends. And it was. But after I was two years later starting to feel really ill, I was able to email him. And he was the one who said to me, no, no, you need that MRI. You need it now. And he was right. He was right. And I owe, I owe my life to him. And he actually was the individual who did my surgery because I had such trust and faith in him as a doctor. And I think that's really the ultimate thing is, is for patients is to have that trust and faith in the healthcare providers who are providing care to them. There's something in the story that still disturbs me a great deal. And that is that your husband is not a doctor. And yet the minute you walked back into the house and you said, I haven't had my CT scan, he said, that's not right. And that intrigues me because something was lost in the translation. Here was a family doctor saying to the emergency department, this lady needs a CT scan because I believe that her tumor is growing. The family physician said this. The emergency doctor rebuffed that. Something was lost in the translation. How did that happen? And I must be honest with you, after my after my surgery, I had a lot of anger as a mother, as a wife that I had to deal with. And I had anger towards the individuals. And then I realized as I slowly got better and recovered, I realized that this was more of a systemic issue. I realized that, you know, when I was in the ER, it was super busy. There were tons of people in there. The doctor was like, he looked frazzled. He was like all over the place. And I realized at that point that, you know what, he was probably trying to fight 10 battles. They were, he was running from me to someone else to someone else. And whilst, yes, his assessment of my case was definitely not ideal at all, I think there were other issues that came into play for sure. I think also the access, of, access to CT scans and MRIs can sometimes be a challenge here, depending in Canada. <laughs> And I, that's why I came to realize that this sometimes is a systemic nature and not just the one person and a one person sort of issue. But yes, and I agree. And I think the other thing was communication, that big challenge of communication between me as a patient and my healthcare provider in the ER. He wasn't listening to what I was actually saying. My voice was not being heard as a patient. I was actually saying, I think it's my brain tumor, but he wasn't hearing that either. That wasn't particularly important. And as you said, the communication from my family physician to him also wasn't really included in the assessment and decision-making. 
So the communication was an issue as well as I think the environment and systemic nature of the situation. You're incredibly generous and compassionate in your assessment of that situation. And for that, I think you're owed a lot of credit. I'm still concerned that even today in this situation, we hear this time and again, that patients have to be their own advocate. And if you listen to this podcast, there are many, many stories like that. People who've found their John Hopkins surgeon, etc., who was able to rescue them from what would have been a, a very poor outcome. And that's really where you've landed in your work at this point. Let's talk about that next. Yeah. So what I realized is after my experience and just out of interest, I also, as we do when we go to a restaurant, we have a bad meal. The only way for the restaurant to actually realize, yeah, I really served up a bad vegetable lasagna is to actually hear feedback from people to actually rectify it. And so that was really important to me is after having had this experience, I did exactly that. I fed back and made complaints on the the care that I had received because I did not want anybody else to go through what I had been through. So I did that in order to make sure that I could also close that chapter in my life, but also to make sure that the system was very much aware of the challenges I faced as a patient and to really highlight those and underscore those. Because even though, as you said, I might be generous in some of the things I've said, I wanted those to be highlighted very clearly to, so that they could look for areas of improvement going forward. That was critical to me. And then after I sort of recovered, which took me 18 months after my surgery, I definitely wanted to find a way to use my experience and my errors, I suppose, to, to move forward and to actually give back to the healthcare system. And so anything from being a patient partner and volunteering in that aspect, I started to do a lot of speaking in the brain tumor community on recovering with brain tumor, but then also patient activation, which is all about having that knowledge, skills, and confidence to manage your health and healthcare. Because even, you know, for me, it was all about how did I track all of my, all of my healthcare information. I have, I still have it here next to my desk because I have lots of other healthcare conditions. I have files of all of my healthcare information. You know, I educated myself on my tumor. I knew everything. I asked questions all the time and I managed my healthcare and, and my health and healthcare. Um, so I spoke a lot on that. And out of all of that has really come some really interesting opportunities for me in the work that I do these days, which is I work as a consultant in patient experience because with my background and lived experience and having navigated the healthcare system. And as I said, I still have a lot of chronic illness and acute illness. So I'm constantly diving in and out of the healthcare system. I use that to help inform and guide healthcare systems, health authorities, and health healthcare organizations on really how to collaborate and optimize the experience for patients and for families and caregivers. Because let me say, I'm a patient, but I have, I have a support system behind me. It's not just me. I can see how families and carers would really benefit from what you're talking about. But I suspect the people who really need to also hear from you are the doctors themselves who do want to prevent this happening in the first place. But they're part of a system that may not be easy to navigate. Have you had an opportunity to do that? Have you had an opportunity to talk to doctors? So yes, that's a really interesting one because I feel like healthcare is, number one, healthcare is often very risk averse 
And number two is healthcare moves like an oil tanker. It's really, really slow to move anything. I have done some talking on patient safety. And whenever I do any of my talks, I always talk about my patient journey and where that landed. And the work that I'm currently doing, I currently work with a healthcare authority on their patient experience strategy. And because patient experience is really about the entire continuum of care and every point of action that a patient, family or caregiver interacts. So it could be anything from, let's say, you know, ward interactions to disclosure, which is exactly what we've just been talking. How do you disclose an adverse event to a patient, family or caregiver? So all of those little areas, I'm being able to actually be involved in and use that lived experience of mine as an individual who has had medical error happen to her in those conversations, in those strategies, in those discussions, and use what I think might be useful as a personal experience to maybe aid and assist them in what they're doing. How is your work being received both in the patient community, but also in the wider community, are you finding rays of hope? You know, it's fascinating. I love the community of patients and family and healthcare advocates that I'm part of. They are some amazing individuals. I, I, I've met some fantastic people who I consider myself as friends now and just some trailblazers out there as well. So I think I'm learning all the time, to be honest with you. It's just, it's just tremendous. And I think with regards, where I consider myself with the work I'm doing now, I definitely think I consider myself to be entrenched in looking for ways to improve the patient experience. At the same time, looking for ways to help people put their health in their own hands, like I did. And I think that's being positive, positively received, for sure. Because I think there is a movement towards, definitely on those two notes, is looking for ways to improve patient experience, family experience, caregiver experience, for sure. And we've seen that, especially over the last 15 months with during the COVID pandemic. And that's definitely been highlighted as an area of questionable experience. So how can we look for ways to actually improve that experience going forward? And I think in the area of sort of patient activation, you know, allowing and giving support to individuals to have the knowledge, skills, and confidence to manage their health and healthcare. I think that's really critical, especially for healthcare going forward with aging populations, increasing chronic diseases. You know, all of us are going to be a patient one day, doesn't matter who we are. But I think for healthcare and healthcare systems, it's critical that they look to how they can support me as a patient to actually become more proactive in that era. Cause I'm not necessarily at a really proactive level compared to someone else, compared to, and just cause I'm, let's say, a, lawyer doesn't mean I know what to do when I'm diagnosed with a a serious illness. So how can healthcare systems really look to support patients in their health and healthcare? So I think those two areas that I'm passionate about and work in are very much highlighted in patient and healthcare communities that I'm part of and are very much areas of focus. We will make sure that In our show notes, we include links to where people can find you and to your TED Talk and to anything else that you feel might be helpful. Claire Snayman, thank you for your courage, for your honesty, for caring enough to communicate with compassion and concern. You are making a difference. Thank you so much for your time. The Health Design Podcast. 
Sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the Journal of Health Design.com.